Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. On this episode, we'll be talking about Mormonism with somebody who was once an active part of the church. For those not familiar with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it it can be kind of a mysterious religion. Uh, Many of us might know a little bit about the church through popular culture. Uh, For example, you know, we might know that the church at one time practiced patriarchal polygamy. Back in the 60s and 70s, if you were into bubblegum music, you might know about the Osmond Brothers or later Donnie and Marie, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. In politics, we might remember Mitt Romney and all the discussions about his Mormon faith. For Broadway geeks like me, uh, we are familiar with the Book of Mormon that won the Tony Award in 2001. By the way, that musical impacted me so much, I wrote a three-part article about it. Uh, We might have seen Mormon missionaries riding their bikes down the street or knocking on our doors, wearing their white shirts and their thin black ties. At Christmas, we probably heard the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, If you visited Salt Lake City, you've probably seen the huge temple, which is the headquarters for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If, like me, you grew up in fundamental Christianity, you might have been told that they're a dangerous cult, or at best, they're a sect. Um, And you might have been warned about some of their extra-biblical beliefs and practices. But I think if you ask most people, who don't know what Mormons believe, what do Mormons believe, uh, they wouldn't know. And so I'm not going to go into detail uh, because I don't want to take that much time away from our guests because we'd all miss out with that. So let me just give kind of a brief overview. The term Mormon is broad and can encompass several different groups. It's generally used to refer to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or LDS. And I'm told also it's not a term they prefer to use for themselves. The LDS is an American-born denomination formed in 1830 by the prophet Joseph Smith. In addition to the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, the LDS recognized the Book of Mormon as another testament of Jesus Christ. It's estimated there are more than 15 million Mormons worldwide, with roughly 57% living in the United States. According to the Mormon website, just under 7,000 of those are living in the U.S., which is about 2% of the population. There are 159 Mormon temples around the world, and at any given time, there can be more than 60,000 missionaries in the field. They believe their church is a restoration of the church as conceived by Jesus, and that other Christian churches have gone astray. Mormons are strongly focused on traditional family life and values. They promote education, the arts, and a strong work ethic. They advocate a life pleasing to God, honesty, and moral purity. So they opposed unmarried sexual acts, pornography, and homosexuality. They have guidelines for health that include no tobacco, alcohol, drugs, coffee, or tea. According to a 2016 Pew Research study, the LDS Church typically places high importance on family, traditional gender roles, and community, or or their church. 
Uh, Mormons are among the most politically and socially conservative religious group in the United States, and Mormons are relatively young and less diverse when compared with other Christian groups. Our guest today, Angela Sof, grew up in a fairly strict Mormon faith with an international element to it. She's a singer and a songwriter, and her songs flow out of her faith journey. When she first contacted us, I began listening to her music, and I have to say, I'm, I'm a fanboy. I've just kind of gotten hooked on it. And so she, she uses her songs to reflect what's going on in her life and in her faith and kind of to help other people, like this one, which is called Rocks, where she sings about how we respond to the differences in others by throwing rocks. Angela, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, as I said, I've, I've been listening to your songs and listening to your music, and I just have been so captivated by what, what you have to say. I, if, if, it, I, if I described your music, now I'm going back to my, I love being able to talk and play music. It goes back to my days working in radio. If I had to describe your music, I would say it's folk with a slight twang. And and don't get me wrong, I have nothing against a twang. Your style and your voice remind me of Judy Collins or Joan Baez or even Brandy Carlisle. So I, I love your music. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's really sweet. I want to begin by talking about you were raised, uh, I mean, not you didn't convert to Mormonism. You were raised in Mormonism. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Did I do justice to kind of the Mormon faith? Do you object to that term? Let me begin with that. Do you object to, you object to the term? No, no, not at all. Um, no, I thought that was a very um, educated, comprehensive assessment of, you know, overall, like through through the history of, of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mormonism is known, you know, the Tabernacle Choir and all of that. Um, yes, and we, until recently, um, you know, Mormons 
were very much proud of, of the Mormon um, title. In fact, there was a whole campaign put on by uh, one of our past church presidents. One prophet was this whole kind of, I'm a Mormon. It's cool to be a Mormon with a bunch of videos. And, but just barely um, they came out and said that, you know, they no longer want people referring to themselves as Mormons, but to use the whole name of the church. So, which is kind of a mouthful. So I feel like everyone <laughs> has to do it. <laughs> right. So you you did grow up as a Mormon from birth. Yes. Yes. I was born what you what we call in the covenant. So both of my parents were married and sealed in the temple to each other. And then all of their children are born in the covenant, meaning that we um, we don't need to go through a ceremony of sealing in the temple. So um we're basically, you know, connected to our family for the eternities. Um, and then, you know, instead of having to go through that ceremony. So, yeah, I was born and raised um, by wonderful parents, very uh, well-educated, and um, I would say moderate, um, very faithful to the faith, but um, not extreme in any way. But we followed all the regular practices, you know, we had family prayer and scripture study and I went to early morning seminary and I attended all of the weekly events and you know Mormonism is a lot like what I would imagine you know being a Jehovah's Witness um, at least socially what it feels like you know it's your life it's it's not just something you do on Sunday it's your entire social framework it's what you breathe and think about and what you eat and um, it kind of dictates everything in your life so uh, yeah, that was my my framework. How I entered the world is through that lens. Can you tell us what sealing is for those of us who don't know? Uh, that's a good question. So um, part of the theology of Mormonism is that we are all the human family, right? Dating back to Adam and that through certain ceremonies that take place in holy temples, we can be um, access the salvation of Christ and be sealed, be connected, be with those people after death in the celestial kingdom. And there's a lot more to this theology, like all the different kingdoms and, you know, what you have to do in order to get into different ones. But that's the basis is that you want to be sealed to your family. You want to be sealed to your spouse. And that without those eternal sealings, you cannot partake of the eternal salvation, the eternal blessings. You grew up in the faith. What was that experience like for you growing up? Was it a happy experience where there are cognitive dissonant experiences happening at the same time? Where were you emotionally? I would say because my, I, I attribute this to my family, my parents, because I know it's not this way for everyone who ends up leaving the faith. But uh, my parents were just so uh, loving and so rational in the way that they raised us that I didn't feel extra controlled. I didn't feel that um, I was an uber weirdo, even though I probably was. I just felt that, you know, there were all these um, rules that if I kept that I would, you know, see the benefits down the road. That said, I, so, so in answer to your question, I felt I had a wonderful childhood growing up in Mormonism. It was very family centered and um, lots of love. However, there were along the way so many points of cognitive dissonance that I hit that I only recognize now as being like little little red flags, little warning signs that something's not right. But I would 
you get into the habit of ignoring your your brain and deferring to to feeling instead like well what am i feeling right now so that would happen all the time where something wouldn't make sense but then i would be asked to refer to how do you feel do you feel the spirit do you feel calm and i'd say well yes you know i do and so that was the the confirmation that i needed was you know that this was god telling you that you were on the right path so yeah, if I like looking back, if I had listened to my my mind a little more, I probably would have run up against it a lot more. But I had, I successfully trained myself to basically be brainwashed and and believe things that I think my my rational self would not have. Well, did you talk about it when you had these issues that were on your mind as you were growing up? Oh yeah, all the time. So we would have early morning seminary where you know as a teenager for four years every morning at. 5 a.m. I'd wake up and go to this this uh, class, and we would be taught, you know, from either the Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, or um, the Pearl of Great Price, which are you know scriptures within Mormonism. And that was a place where we could ask all of our questions and raise concerns. And what about this? And what about you know why couldn't black people have the priesthood? And you know what about there were lots of questions, um, inconsistencies, but uh, those were there were always answers, you know, and even if the answer was, we just don't know in this life, you know, Heavenly Father is going to make it right in the next life. And so that was always like the bottom, like if you get to a place of like, we can't answer this, well, the Lord knows and he'll make it right. You won't be unhappy in polygamy, you know, you only have to live polygamy if, if that's what the Lord wants for you. And if you get there, if you get to heaven and that's your lot in life, then you'll be happy. He'll make sure you're happy. Like those kinds of things would come up where like something inside's like, ah, I don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> there's something wrong with that, but you're always just kind of placated like, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. You know? So yeah, we were given room to ask questions, but really the, the obvious answer is always that your doubts are wrong and the scripture or the, or the church is right. You just answered a question I was going to ask about not just being allowed to ask the question, but feeling that the questions would be welcomed. Because I know sometimes growing up in, in my fundamentalist background, if we ask questions, we would get this. You're not supposed to ask those questions. So I, I, I appreciate that you said there was there was at least a, a space for asking, even if ultimately it's God will work all that out at some point later. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what I wonder too, Angela, is if you're in this situation, were there others around you asking those questions or were you just kind of drinking all of this in and, and absorbing what you were taught? Well, kind of both. Like publicly, you know, you, you see you, you see everyone following and everyone, you know, I, you particularly see this like when you go through the temple for the first time, you kind of look around and think, wow, you know, like is this what everyone's doing? But everyone's doing it. You know, everyone's bowing their head and saying yes. Every, and so you think, well, gosh, okay. You know, I guess we're, we're all in it. And in a sense, you know, you're all drinking the Kool-Aid, but in private conversations is where I would hear people expressing doubts or concern. Um, so it was very much like publicly, you don't express that, but between friends or to your spouse, you could say, you know, what you really think or, or question. However, you know, I do believe that the church has become much more um, open to, you know, the, the topic of doubt. You know, there's there are lots of conference, general conference talks about 
doubting your doubts and that there's room for asking questions as long as it ultimately returns you to the Lord and those sorts of things. I mean, you were raised Mormon, but you were not raised uh, in the U.S. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was raised in um, the capital city of uh, in Manila in the Philippines. So um, I lived there from the time I was about eight years old. I was baptized in the States and then we moved to Asia. And then I stayed there until I graduated from high school. And I ended up going to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, which is like the Mecca of, oh yeah, you know, it's the <laughs> church, right? The Mormon University, God's church. So um, that was kind of a culture shock for me. It was like entering the world of of pure Mormonism coming from, you know, what we called the mission field or like a place where, you know, I was in a minor, I was a minority and, you know, and BYU was, uh, it's just a circus. It's wild. And <laughs> not, not in the sense anyone thing is wild. <laughs> it's wild. In the sense right. It's so, it's so different from any other college campus. So. Yeah. If you've been raised in an Asian culture, then to go to BYU, I can imagine that would be a, uh, a kind of a shift in the way you view things, even the way you act and respond to things. Yeah, yeah even well, coming to America, I would think it would be a massive shift. Yeah, like this is totally unrelated to Mormonism, but I had never worn close-toe shoes before. So I get to you know mountainous Utah, and I'm wearing like this oversized coat that doesn't fit me, and all these hand-me-down things and I'm wearing shoes. And on the first you know, couple of days, I have terrible blisters because I've never worn shoes like that. I don't know the culture. I don't know, like, I don't know TV shows. I didn't, I wasn't like in, you know, up to date on pop culture and all that and dating, you know, like there's a whole Mormon way to date. And that was crazy. And, you know, yeah, it was, it was like culture shock plus religious overload shock, you know, plus college. And it was, it was rough. It was hard. <laughs> but I adjusted and figured out how to navigate BYU. When did your interest in music uh, begin to emerge? Um, I always loved to play the piano. When I was little, um, I would like watch my sister taking piano lessons, and then I would go and play the songs that she was supposed to be practicing. And so my mom decided to let my sister quit because she was begging to quit and paid for me to take lessons. So. I was about five years old at that time, and I just, I loved playing the piano. I never really sang a whole lot. My sister was the one that loved to sing, and I would play. I wanted to be a bird when I grew up. That was like my my goal in life, was I wanted to be an animal. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't really in my everybody, everybody, yeah. everybody needs a goal. I know. <laughs> well, I have a daughter now who all she wants in life is to grow up and become a tiger. And it, <laughs> it's so adorable but um yeah that was kind of I was very simplistic and I loved uh I just loved to like make up you know like new age pieces and little classical songs um and it wasn't until I got into college that um I started out wanting to be a piano performance major but it's four hours of practice every single day with master classes and all this stuff and it just like burned me out I didn't I didn't love it like I wanted to and so I switched to journalism and decided to minor in music. And it was around this time that I saw a, a bluegrass band playing. And I had just auditioned for an opera and I, I saw this band playing and they looked like they were having so much fun. 
And I stopped them and I was like, what are you guys doing? This looks like a class. And they're like, oh, this is like the, the BYU folk band. And we tour with like the folk dancers. And I was like, well, what do you have to play to be in it? And they're like, oh, you have to play guitar or like a folk instrument. I was like, can I play the piano? And they're like, no, you can't. So I, one summer I learned three chords and I auditioned in the fall and like somehow I made it somehow. And so I began touring with the BYU folk music band. And that's like how I got started with folk music. And I started, you know, just singing and making up little songs and it kind of grew from there. And then I just played a bunch of, played with lots of um, bands and started gigging and writing my own music and yeah that's kind of just how it started was not not necessarily on purpose but I found that you know my love for music grew when I learned to play guitar like it just gave me another outlet another avenue you know would you describe your experience with music as your emotional outlet or your spiritual outlet what is that like for you yeah it's um it's my emotional outlet I wouldn't say it's my spiritual one that that word spiritual, I don't know if you guys can relate because of your backgrounds as well, but just I think anyone who has a religious background, like this, the word spiritual is like very loaded for me. Yeah. Um, and it's come to believe to be something different for me now, but my I would say that my music is definitely has been the thing that it's like, it's like my dumping ground, like anything that's frustrating or stressful, it's like a journal and it just like comes out in this song and it's really therapeutic. It's like, I don't know. It's, I I imagine it's like for other people, you know, like going for a run or whatever. It just feels like you're getting some energy out. I feel that way about writing. Writing for me is, is cathartic. It's therapeutic. And especially as I began my journey of questioning my faith and deconstructing all of it, writing really helped me to put things in perspective and and not go so inside myself that I went mad I think yeah and mm-hmm. and you know for me bill I think it, I I I split into two sides I had my intellectual side which is where the books come from and then I have the musical side and I I did gospel music for 25 years and threw everything out when I left the faith I threw I took all my music stuff and I put it in the attic and it stayed there for many many years and just recently I started taking my stuff down and now I incorporated it into the last speech I gave because it was such an important part of me spiritually. And and I use that word spiritual because it, it does come up in a lot of connotations. It's not necessarily a religious word. Uh, I remember grappling over this with friends about what is spiritual. And for a lot of people, that word just means these feelings you get by looking at art or just some kind of an emotional experience. So I it is a bit of a trigger word, but I think how we, I think it's how we express ourselves, right? Whether it's through writing or music, for me, it's always been there. As soon as I um, started playing the piano at 13 years old, it was that, that feeling, that security, that emotional outlet was everything to me. And, you know, I walked away from it when I left the church and then have just recently started to grab it back again and, and make it my own. So Angela, what was music like for you in the church? Were you involved in music in the church? And did some of that transfer out when you moved on with your life? So I was the choir director when I hit my faith crisis. Um, and it was actually being the choir director that like, 
forced me to stay longer. Like I stayed attending church longer because I liked it so much. It was the part that I like loved was that I got to, you know, kind of curate this choir. And um, music, what is a huge part of um, Mormonism, you know, it's uh, like they, you know, we joke that Mormonism, like it's like a little factory for little musicians because, you know, everyone has their kid in some lesson or something. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's skill and talent that you can take with you on your mission. And so mm, music has been like a tool that I've used all throughout my time in the church. But what you just shared about, you know, kind of shelving it when you left the faith, I totally relate to that because that's what happened. I put out a solo album and then I went through my faith crisis or no, sorry, I put out a solo album. We moved across the country, all this stuff happened. And I, I just, for a lot of reasons, just like set aside music completely. I had, you know, three little, little kids. I just didn't have time. And I also felt like there was no room like for a mom, a Mormon mother to be like, pursuing music and it just didn't fit with the mold that I was supposed to be living. And so I didn't do anything with it for a really long time. It was probably like 10 years. And it's only, it was only going through my faith crisis that like kind of opened that envelope. And I was so desperate and so upset and so, so, um, so many questions and concerns that I just, I felt like I needed, anyway, I dusted off my guitar and started playing again. And it was like, it was magical, you know, so good for you for doing that. That's like, it's like reopening a part of yourself that's always been there. You know, that's awesome. You you mentioned your faith crisis, and I, I definitely want to talk about that because I think people can relate to, to that, to, well, to the term itself. And I want to go into some specifics with you. Before we do that, we're going to take a short break and talk about the Recovering from Religion organization, and we'll be right back. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S., with our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Many of us at Recovering From Religion know that changes to our faith and beliefs about God create uncertainty and anxiety. We can find ourselves lacking guidance and without a community. With that in mind, we've developed our first ever Recovering From Religion Fall Excursion, September 20th through the 22nd of this year. We'll be gathering in the tranquil mountains of North Carolina where the stars are bright and the air is clean and fresh, and they talk with an accent like mine. Join us for workshops on embracing healthy sexuality, leaving fears of hell behind, yoga, a guided hike from our very own Dr. Daryl Ray, stargazing, wine and cider tasting, campfires, music, great food, and of course, great company. The on-site lodges are comfortable and modern, and our registration includes all meals and activities. 
Tickets and lodging are limited, so register early at recoveringfromreligion.org. Free from judgment, join us and rediscover yourself. radio station call sign right now, but we are uh, here with our guest, Angela Sof. She's uh, just hearkening back to my radio days. And that's that's one of her songs. That's called All Right to Be You, uh, a beautiful song and, and a great message. Tell us how that came as part of your journey. That is our, my most recent single that I released with a co-writer, a co-producer, who is also um, a recovering ex-Mormon. And I met him at actually an event um, not too long ago when I was releasing my most recent album. And uh, we got chatting and just, I don't know, I had this like huge light bulb idea that came into my mind. I was like, I want to do this project. I feel like there needs to be music that's that helps people feel like they're okay, like they're good enough for whatever it is they want to do, whatever it is they want to get over, that it's okay. And a lot of times, I don't know if you guys are this way, but it's, you know, we make things that we actually just need for ourselves. We write the things that are really written for ourselves. So that song um, I wrote with, uh, his name's Milo Craft, and um, it was our first song in this project that we called Be Moved. And it's kind of like an electro pop project because uh, he's an electronic producer and it was super fun because we have like zero budget <laughs> we just do things remotely we live about three hours away from each other and um, it was really cool to do something for a purpose normally like I was saying when I write it's it comes from like this place of deep sadness or like an extreme emotion that's just like flowing out you know but this song was definitely curated. It was something that I intentionally wrote for someone else. And that felt like a gift, like I was giving. Some of my other music feels like I'm just like vomiting my stress out, you know, into music. But this felt like I was giving something. And I really, really like that feeling of producing something that that I hope has a positive impact that isn't just about my own garbage. So not that my music is garbage, but it's just you know, that doesn't come from a painful place. So that's what that song is about. And it's, it was really fun. Yeah. And there's very few people who can't relate to somebody telling them it's okay to be you. I mean, who, who doesn't, who doesn't need to hear that on a regular basis? Exactly. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, I mean, the lyrics, if you listen to them, they come from, you know, this idea that I think we, we, you can get it from any place, but particularly religion, controlling religions tell you, 
when you should feel ashamed, when you should feel guilty. And there are just a lot of shoulds in there. And, you know, our goal is to say, hey, you know, you don't have to feel anything you don't want to feel. Like you get to be in charge, you get to choose. And you don't have to sit in your mess. You can rise above it. You can make something new. I think so many people, you know, they get to this place of like, oh no, you know, I've made this huge mistake or I'm I'm stuck in this trap or, you know, my whole life is wrapped up in this thing and now I have to get out of it. It's a tangled web and they sit in it and they don't actively like climb out and try to do something different and rewire their thought processes or fill the space with something new. And I see that all the time. I get messages from tons of people, you know, asking how they can, how they can get unstuck or just, you know, have courage to make different life choices and how, and be okay with themselves. You know, how can I have a glass of wine and not just want to feel like I'm the worst person ever? So, you know, I, I think there's just a lot packed into that message that it is okay to be you exactly as you are. You don't have to change anything in order to be acceptable. And that's, that was a new message for me. Can you talk a little bit about the faith crisis? What did you go through? What were your experiences coming out of that? And then tie back in your music, because your music clearly, even though it's not geared toward religion, it clearly has a flavor of discovery of what it's like to come out of uh, of some kind of a fundamentalist or belief system into being more authentically you. Yeah, I would say that my faith, you know, sort of journey or awareness, awakening started to happen on my mission. I served a, a full-time mission in Brazil and I lived in this small area, basically in Southern central Brazil. And I spoke Portuguese, you know, I didn't speak any English, um, just lived like a native and proselytized. I, I was those people with the plaque, you know, went around and knocked on people's doors. So I, I, um, I learned a lot about my religion during that time. And I saw sort of how the message was conveyed to people. And then, you know, there was a, there was the deeper doctrine. So we would, you know, we would tell them about eternal families and all this stuff, but then there's also the deeper doctrine, more of the Joseph Smith, Pearl of Grey Prize, Doctrine and Covenants doctrine that was under the surface. And you would have to be a member for a while to really know and learn all of those things. And that wasn't really presented to the new members, to people we met on the streets. And um, so we were converting a lot of people that I felt didn't actually know what they were getting into until you, you know, go to the temple and you really study, you know? So I felt like I was even one of those people where as a missionary, I started to really get to know it. And a lot of questions came up a lot, you know, polygamy, race issues, inconsistencies in the Book of Mormon. Um, inconsistencies even with like what Jesus taught versus what we were teaching, not at a higher level, but more of like a specific level. Like where did, you know, anyway, I don't even want to go, to go into the details, but um, that's where it started. And then, you know, I would suppress my, my questions and move on. I would, you know, I went back to BYU. I graduated. I got married. We started having kids right away, like you're supposed to. Questions would arise, and I would suppress them. More questions would arise. It was Christmas, and we were celebrating Joseph Smith instead of, you know, the birth of Christ. And I, you know, questions came up. I even emailed a few professors, and you know, my my concerns were quieted. So that this kind of 
like back and forth, um, angst and then suppression happened for many, many years. And then finally, uh, there was a time when we were, I was living in Richmond, Virginia, and I felt like I no longer was connecting with, with God on like a personal level. Like I would pray and I wouldn't feel anything and I would ask questions and nothing would come. And I started to get really angry. Um, like, you know, why isn't God answering me? Why am I not, you know, having more guidance and anyway, and you know, three little kids, it just got really difficult and I felt less and less committed. I felt like I was just going through the motions. So when my husband and I took our first job out of grad school, we moved to Washington where we live now. I decided, both of us decided we were going to be, you know, we were going to up our game and be more committed. So we were going to really, you know, dive in and get to know all the members of our ward. And we were going to be so faithful. We were going to start reading our scriptures together again and all these things, check off all the boxes. And, you know, shortly after we moved here, I had like a a mental crisis breakdown. I felt like all the doubts just, just completely came to the surface. And I, it, it came to the point where, you know, the pain of attending every Sunday with all these looming questions and, you know, faced with that, that pain was greater than the pain of, okay, let's look at my life and see what's really going on here. So I actually called, my cousin is a, um, a psychologist and I called her one Sunday and I was like, I think I went crazy because I just want to cry when I'm sitting in church. I just want to like run away. I want to scream. I'm so not feeling what I'm supposed to be feeling. And she was like, look, you know, if you were my patient, I would tell you, get to the bottom of what's bothering you. Like, go, go ask your questions. Like whether it's about marriage, whether, whether it's about life choices, you know, you figure it out. Like, don't be afraid to ask questions. And so I did. And I went to the library and I checked out all these books on Mormonism that I wasn't supposed to be reading because we're not supposed to be <laughs> outside of, you know, right, right. The, the literature. And so um, I felt like I was like looking at porn or something like reading these books, like brought up so much guilt that I was like, you know, being, I was, I was being disobedient. You know, I wasn't supposed to be questioning my faith that I had committed my whole life to. Did your husband know you were going through this faith crisis and, and reading all this forbidden literature? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I told him, uh, luckily my husband and I are um, good friends. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, all right, you know, you do what you have to do. He's like, I know where I stand, but you do what you have to do. And so, you know, night after night, I'm I'm just absorbing all this information, new things I didn't know um, that I had never been told. And I started to get really angry. And I remember there was like a snap moment between when I was, my mind was on the side of, you know, being critical of the books, like, oh, this is just anti-Mormon. And then the moment when my mind actually said, wait a minute, what if, what if the book is right? Like, what What if this historian that's put in 30,000 hours to write this book actually knows what they're talking about, you know? So I feel like this moment where I just like, my mind jumped off a cliff and looked at it from the other side. Like that's when immediately, like everything fell into place and made sense finally. Like, oh, well, that's why, you know, we're told this or we're told that, like none of that's actually true. And and with that came like so much freedom, but it also so much like shame and guilt that I would have to like tell my friends and family. So I hid it for a really long time. 
what was that experience like? Can you describe what you were feeling? The the I guess the the doom and dread of telling your friends and family. Where were you at that point in this process? Oh, it was that was the that was the bottom of the pit. Was like right before telling people. Um, just so much fear. I was terrified. And also, and I've said this before on other other interviews, because I think it accurately um, describes what happens when your brain is forced to, to do that cognitive dissonance for so long. Um, I felt like I was, almost had a split personality because I would read information that made sense. And then the other half of my brain or whatever it was, my, my programming would pop in and shame me. Like, look at you, you, I can't believe how how far you've fallen. Like you are an endowed member of the church. You are enlightened. You are one of the, you know, we call ourselves like the elect, you know, the very, the very elitists, right? So that's how we, we considered ourselves to be so elite because we were so enlightened and had the celestial, you know, had the, the sealing ceremonies done. And so we were special. And so my special self would yell at my new self constantly it was a constant like internal battle of her shaming me and then me having to defend myself like no you know i'm i'm being honest and i'm i'm really seeking with my heart and my mind and so there was like this weird psychological struggle going on and i don't know if that's common i i think that it does happen a lot of times when people are are forced to face like the programmed side of their brain and then overpower it. So like the past four years has been me like, like really trying to overpower my programmed brain because that will pop up. That voice will pop up all the time when I'm with family or when I'm, you know, back around, you know, Mormon friends, I'll feel all of a sudden so much shame that I have departed, you know, that I've like rocked the boat. So that, that, yeah. that part of my life was like the very bottom and it was the hardest worst thing i would never wish it on anyone it was it was truly like i sometimes just thought it would be better if i could just die because i wouldn't i don't want anyone you know to know how you know despicable i am like i felt so bad about myself which is crazy now to think about but i really took on so much ownership did you ever at, at any point feel like I really felt like I was special to God and now I'm not. I realize mm -hmm. I'm not. Did you ever have one of those yep. moments? That happened to me, um, I mean, over and over again. I felt like, well, that's why God wasn't answering mm -hmm. me. Like, I'm I'm not. I'm not a goddess. <laughs> I'm not going to be, you know, I don't have a mansion in heaven waiting for me. Like all your hopes and dreams, right? Everything that you build your your entire life on comes crashing down, including your self-esteem in the eyes of God, supposed, you know? Mm -hmm. I think people who haven't gone through that, uh, I, I've had people I've talked to, they say, well, just don't believe that or just stop believing it. And they don't realize how, how intrinsic it is to our worldview, our after worldview. And and when we start rethinking it, then we see ourselves differently. And it, I, I, I relate to this feeling of shame and, and I'm not special and God doesn't hear me. It, it's a very, very difficult process. And of course, Tim, Tim wrote a book called Rethinking Everything, which talks about this whole process of, of taking ourselves through 
you know, this is what I believed and I have to rethink everything now. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think we build a cocoon. You know, I asked that question because I remember that was one of the things that I experienced as well was I, I'd been a musician. All of my emotions were in my music. And all I knew, all I still know is gospel music. And I, I, I thought I was good. I thought I was special to God. I thought he had kept me. I thought he had protected me. I thought all of these things about my life based on this belief system. And suddenly, or not suddenly, but over time, that belief system disappears. And I realize I'm not special. I'm just another human being on this planet. And that connection I thought I had with God wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then you're processing and then you're thinking. And then for me, because I was a musician, that you know, all of my emotions were there and I put that away. So now where do you go? What do you, what do, you do with all that? Yeah, all that makes so much sense. Yeah, of course you put it away, right? Because that was your connection. Right. Oh, yeah, it, it's it's really a unique experience, I think, for people who I relate to that people who haven't been in this sort of situation. They're like, well, I don't know. Go, it's, it's almost like, well, you don't like that gym? Go to a different gym. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, no, this gym is my entire life. Like it's, it's right. so all encompassing that it's hard to even explain to someone who has not endured it and. And it's why there are so many support groups everywhere because, you know, every person has to, has to forge their own journey, unfortunately. And it includes realizing that you are another human being on the planet, that you're not a special snowflake. And the only way to feel special is to make yourself special is to, is to believe in yourself and not rely on something outside of you to validate you or to reward you in the next life. Mm-hmm. Because I would spend so much time thinking, well, you know, I don't really need to do, this is my rationale. I don't actually need to like do anything with my life here because if I do enough service, if I just help enough people and if I am a really, um, you know, if I check all those boxes, then the real life is in the next. So my eyes were fixed always on, what's to come later and it wouldn't it didn't really matter what I did as long as I was um obedient and and faithful and did a lot of service right I know that I want we want to talk about your music but did you uh, I'm assuming you did eventually talk to your parents and and also how is your husband handling this transition and rethinking in your life okay well so those are two things the first one um I did I told my my mom first Um, and she, you know, she cried and was very devastated. Um, and I think, you know, still holds out so much hope. Like she lives, thrives on hope that I will return, um, and thinks that I'm taking a detour. So that's fine. You know, I, I don't, (laughs) I tell her that, you know, I'm seeking truth in the best way I possibly can. And, and we don't go beyond that, you know, we kind of stick to safe subjects. And, and so my family is very, um, I would say disappointed in me. You know, I've, I'm definitely fallen. I've, I'm the black sheep. I'm the wayward child, um, which are all labels that I don't, don't identify with. Mm -hmm. Like I was always actually a really good girl and I was always, you know, I, I was modest and did all the things that I was supposed to do. And so, suddenly being that, um, you know, that rebel child was like an identity I just couldn't cope with. It like 
ripped me out from inside because I was like, no, I'm, I'm actually your good kid. Remember, I'm still the same me. And, um, you know, but you, you can't, you learn over time, you know, like you can't, you can't carry other people's issues. Like they have to come to, you know, their own framework of accepting you. So, um, so it's okay. Like we, we get along fine. And, um, but I wouldn't say, I'd say there's room for improvement and like, I hope over the years that it gets better anyway. And my husband, this is kind of funny. So while I'm reading, you know, my stacks of books, he is kind of walking around, like shaking his head, like you're just, you know, <laughs> I think he's just like, she's on one of her rants, you know, cause I, I'm kind of an intellectual and he's like, Oh, okay, whatever. She'll come around. And then one night I found him reading one of the books and he sets it down and he's like, did you know? <laughs> and, you know, starts telling me and I was like, I know, right. Crazy. And then the next night he's reading it again and he's reading it again. And before I knew it, like he, he had decided in much less time than I needed that he was done. He has his own journey and his own story, but um, he was definitely harmed by Mormonism in a much more uh, severe way than I was. So for him, it was a quick like, oh, gosh, I don't have to believe this anymore. I'm done. And so he stopped going right away. And so, you know, I kept going for a year or two after and um, and he he's just been out and he's as happy as ever. He's actually a beer judge now. <laughs> alcohol, so. yeah the, i was gonna say that they don't have that at the church socials not at our church either <laughs> also, you know what? the early the early mormon church had a brewery where the current hogel zoo is in salt lake city that used to be a brewery oh um but you know times change when new prophets you know come around and say what's okay and what's not so anyway it's interesting let's talk about your music so you left the mormon church you're writing these songs as i said they're they're not necessarily geared towards religion but you're certainly hitting the topics right the song rocks talks about throwing rocks at each other and and not listening um the, the one we just played all right to be you is that's a powerful song when you've come out of something like religion where you've been told who you're supposed to be and you don't measure up where where does this come from? Where are are you targeting that, uh, or are you targeting just specific areas of your own life that you feel is is a message for you? The music started out being about me. You know, like I was saying, it was an expression of something that I was feeling, and um, and I saw that there were other people suffering, and so I decided to release the music. Now in my music journey. Um, I, I think that my faith crisis gave me two things. One, it gave me permission to be myself and and make music again. And the other was, is that it gave me permission to, um, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but uh, I believed that I w was supposed to be a mom and, and focus on that 100%. And now I feel like I have so many more parts to me that I want to give and want to share. And one of them is music and one and and helping other people through their stuff. So this is music as an outlet for me to do that. And I'm I, I just feel like I'm so much more free to express that. You know, I play with a band, um, my Americana band, and we tour and 
we do like a bunch of other stuff that's it doesn't really sound like this um what you just played it's you know it's more like dance and fun music but this particular part of my musical expression yes is very much targeted and and an expression for people who are suffering specifically from like self-doubt and coming out of a controlling environment whether it's you know a bad relationship or you know you feel like you've been beaten down at work or whatever it is like i think that we all come from from situations that are that can be really damaging and we doubt ourselves so that that's kind of where i feel like i am right now with my music is like i have now a platform and, and a way to reach other people and help them realize that they don't need to be stuck wherever they are like you can you can be your best self and and we need that like we need everyone to be on fire we need everyone to be their best happiest self because it makes everyone better makes everything better and when even just a few of us are like you know not feeling it or or doubting ourselves like it doesn't make the world better and i think people can relate to that and i'm sure you you get comments from people who hear your music and it gives them hope it gives them maybe a courage to try once again because as you said we all need support when we are going through this and sometimes we do feel all alone and 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 i do encourage anybody who's going through these kinds of questions or are just having serious doubts uh, find somebody that can support you find somebody that can you said you talk to your cousin i think we all need somebody that we can just bounce this stuff off of and i think your music is also a way that can speak to something inside somebody that maybe they can't put into actual words or even thoughts but but there's something in there that that touches deep inside somebody so angela where can people find you they can find me uh i have a website it's my name angelasof.com um that's two f's s-o-f-f-e and um, so that's kind of like the the holding place for everything. Um, but we're also on social media, you know, Facebook, Angela Soap Band, and on Instagram too. I think it's also Angela Soap Band. And yeah, we're getting ready for a summer tour, at least with the band. And the band plays some of my, you know, we play stuff from my recent album in addition to other things I'm writing. But yeah, that's where you can find me. And um I would love to, I'd love to hear from other people. You know, I love hearing their experiences. I love it when people like reach out to me and, you know, just tell me like if something's benefiting them. Cause that really like, it inspires me when I feel like what I'm putting out is making a difference to people. And if you yeah. go online to my website and, um, and if you sign up for my mailing list, you get a free download, I think of rocks. Mm. So. And you have a YouTube channel and there's several of your songs that have been made into videos. And I encourage people to see those because they're so your your videos are so well done. And so I, I think I encourage people to do that. Uh, we will have this information also on our website. As you listen to the podcast, there'll also be these links. And, and you mentioned a new project that you're doing. Yes. Yes. So um, with this producer, uh, Milo Craft, we are doing this Be Moved project. So. We are making, uh, our goal is to make three songs in 2019. We're both pretty busy. So this is like a, feels like a hefty goal, but I think we can do it. And we're on, we have a Patreon page. So the way it works is people can 
donate and become a patron of the arts, become a patron of the project. And I think for $1, you can get inside access to everything that we're doing. And it really supports the project and helps pay for, you know, production and promotion and all that. Yeah. So if, if people want to help support the music, that's a really, really great way. I would encourage you to do that. That'd be so awesome. And we'll have that link as well. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, being with us, and for sharing your story. And we have another song. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Recovering From Religion. We invite you to visit our website at recoveringfromreligion.org to find other valuable resources or make a donation. Mm -hmm.